That's a, I think, Karen's arrangement on the hymn at the name of Jesus. We'll sing it at the end of the service, and in a sense, how fitting that all of our lives are moving to the time, that's a phrase from Philippians 2, the time we will all bow before King Jesus on his throne. That's where history is going, that's where our lives are going, and actually this is where the sermon series is ending. We, uh, I'm sad, our series on, uh, on this text is ending this morning. We've, we've called it From Eternity to Eternity, How God Claims and Keeps His Own. And there's this breathtaking preamble to a prayer in 2 Thessalonians where Paul prays for the comfort of the people that he's writing to. They're under persecution. And he, he, he tells them before he prays for them, he gives them the theological underpinning of why the God who claimed them from all eternity chose them for himself will in fact finish the work he began, glorifying them with Jesus when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we come to the end of the series on what theologians call the ordo salutis with the doctrine of glorification. Thank you for choosing that. Karen is our offertory, and again, we'll sing it congregationally at the conclusion of the service. Here's our text for about the 10th time together this summer. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord. Let me just stop and say, I'm thankful for you, beloved. I'm thankful for 18 months serving as your interim. You're his beloved. I'm thankful for you. Because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this he called you through our gospel so that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm. Hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. And that's the preamble. Now here's the prayer. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope, by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. Years ago, I was a pickup basketball junkie. I was addicted to it. And one of the guys I played with happened to tell me about accompanying his wife to Russia. She was there on a business trip, and he went along and lo and behold, he found a pickup basketball game with some strangers in Russia. I said, what was that like? He said, well, when we finished playing, they all surrounded me and stared at me. What was going on? He said, they could tell I was from another country and that I had hope that I would be leaving there for a better place. How could they tell? They could see it in my eyes. Can people tell that you have hope, confidence, certainty, 
for a better place. Paul says God has given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace. It is a certainty that if you belong to Jesus, you have a citizenship in a better place. Heaven, glory with Jesus. And several weeks ago, we began to unpack the doctrine of adoption, that the moment we belong to Jesus, we are given all the rights and privileges of the sons of God. And at that time, I said, this doctrine of adoption is enjoyed in terms of already, but not yet. You already have all of these graces. I won't preach that sermon again to you. But it's not yet been fully realized. So, for example, we will be like Christ in glory in a glorified body that is impossible to sin. We will stand in the presence of God. We'll enjoy all the riches of God. And we will reign with God. That has not yet been realized. And yet that is the most precious, the most beautiful, the most desirous, the most winsome thing a human being could ever want. So I want to sort of do part two on adoption, which bleeds naturally into the, do into the doctrine of glorification, the doctrine of glory. Let's look at it so we can desire it more. Do you, do you desire glory as much as you think in your conscience you should? I don't. I need this doctrine to know how to live now in light of the not yet fully realized. So here, let's look at it this way. Number one, what is it? A helpful place to answer that question is to go to Philippians chapter 3 where Paul writes in 20 and 21, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Man, that's a mouthful. If you belong to Jesus, your ultimate true citizenship is heaven. From heaven, we're awaiting the coming of our beloved Savior, Jesus Christ. And at that moment, at the end of earth history, he will instantaneously transform your lowly body into his indestructible resurrection body. The dead will be raised. They'll receive their bodies. Stan will have an indestructible body like the body of Jesus, what we call the blessed hope. But notice, according to the end of verse 21, that Jesus will do that by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. So that tells you that glory must be about what happens when all things are subjected to the power of Jesus Christ. Glory is bringing, through his power, Jesus bringing the restoration of all things good. It is intolerable to your God that this world be as broken and fractured and evil as it is. He will do something about it. It's the hope of glory. For example, Jesus is exercising his power to bring about the restoration of all things good spiritually. 
You were made for the presence of God. By his power, Jesus will restore you to the place where you see the face of God in Jesus Christ. You hear the voice of God. You relish his love. You participate in his reign. The restoration of all things spiritual. The rest of it, restoration of all things relational. You know, that part of you that longs to be accepted just for who you are. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to put on masks. You don't have to pose you want to be appreciated unconditionally, that part of you will be realized perfectly in glory. Jesus, by his power, will restore all things good and healthy and perfect relationally. Thirdly, personally, by his power, Jesus will restore what you were made to be in the image of God. We were all born little babies, and we didn't know it, and it didn't look like it in the cuteness of our babydom, but we were all born warped, twisted, maimed, and fractured by the fall. We're born a mess. In an instant, by his power, Jesus will subject your personhood to perfection. Everything disjointed will be restored in that moment personally for you. And of course, physically, he said, he'll transform our lowly bodies. Do you realize that in the earthly ministry of Jesus, the healing miracles of Jesus are importing into the present, into his present, the future. So when people can't see, they can't hear, they can't walk, their hands don't work, their, their, their uh, body has disease, they've died, there's leprosy. Jesus is restoring that, anticipating the day when we will be in bodies that are subjected to no sickness at all. The people in Jesus' day were getting a foretaste of glorified bodies. In an instant, Jesus will use his power to bring your body to subjection to his power to make all things good. Your body will never die, it will never sin, it will never experience anything wrong with it. And Finally, cosmically, when Jesus returns, the earth will be returned to its pristine condition. We're not hoping eternally for a place of clouds and harps and ethereal that you can't make any sense out of it. We're, we're hoping in a renewed earth. This earth will be remade. You're going to live on the earth. Trees, grass, mountains, rivers, streams. That's what you're made for. Jesus will restore this creation that is now groaning, waiting for the revelation of the sons of God. <laughs> It's been subjected to futility. This creation can't, maybe that's what a thunder and lightning is. Creation's kind of going, we don't like this being subjected to sin because of you guys. This is a reminder in the skies. It's not going to be any lightning and thunder in the new heavens and the new earth. Creation will be completely at peace with itself and with us. So beloved, if, if you look at the handout, I just want to tease out a few of the things that will mark this state of existence for us. No tears. I mean, what's there to be sad about in glory? No toil. The curse will be reversed, completely eradicated. No transgression. There'll be no sin in your soul. No trauma. There's no sickness, no body, no death, no disease. No temptation. The tempter will be in the lake of fire. There'll be no such thing as indwelling sin in you. No terror. We stand perfectly in the presence of God. No tension. All things will be reconciled by the power of Jesus to bring in subjection all things to himself, restoring all things good. No tempest. The creation is at peace. That sounds pretty good. That's our hope. That's our future. I bet if you fixed your mind on that, 
it would be impossible for you to be no earthly good. I'll bet minds fixed on that would be incredibly earthly fruitful. Number two, we're looking at what glory is. I want to answer the question, why do we long for glory? You may say, hey, I don't believe in God. Mike, I don't believe in the Bible that you read. I don't believe the Bible is the word of God. Understand. You don't have to believe in God to be disgusted with death, disease, injustice, tragedy, calamity, evil. You don't have to be a believer in God to be disgusted with those things. I mean, how many people wake up in the day, the beginning of the day, and they say, today, I want to fail. Today, I want to be cheated. Today, I want to be traumatized. Today, I want to be shamed and ridiculed. Today, oh, please, I want to experience suffering and loss. How many people wake up and want that? Nobody does because you weren't created for that. That is not innate to who you are. There's something in us that when the fairy tale ends and they lived happily ever after, there's a smile that comes in our hearts that says, that's the way it's supposed to be. You were made for a world that is beautiful, perfect, sinless, good, awesome, pristine, without the slightest imperfection. And God made you desire to live forever. Ecclesiastes says God has put eternity in man's heart. You want to live. You want to live in paradise. And yet the Bible is very clear. This life is plagued with futility. It can't reach its goal. It's like the time I went out driving in my car and I couldn't get past 15 miles an hour. The transmission broke. The transmission would not move from the first gear. I couldn't go faster than 15 miles an hour. I had to turn around, go home, get another car. It wouldn't work the way it was designed. We are all stuck in first gear, beloved. We don't get to 70 miles an hour like we want to in this life, in this body. We don't. May that be a marker to you, God speaking silently to you in the, in the, in the crush, crushingness of the painfulness of life that there is something better in knowing him. And here's the way Joe read it for us earlier. It is going to be better. Revelation 21, the dwelling place of God is with man. It's where it belongs. It's where God created it to begin with. He dwelt with Adam and Eve in the garden. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. That's life as it should be. If your vision of life, your American dream, doesn't have the presence of God in the middle of it, it is seriously deficient, and it will destroy you because you were not made to live for something without the presence of God, ultimately. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither will be mourning, nor crying, nor pain. The former things have passed away, and I dare say will never be remembered. What pain, what sorrow, what loss, what sin. It will be looking forward nothing but perfection. And what's the big difference between the perfection we will have in glory than the one Adam and Eve experienced before the fall? 
no possibility of losing it. Adam and Eve were created for perfection with the possibility of forfeiting it, and they did. No possibility for us in glory of forfeiting what we have. Third question you're probably wondering, how do I get this glory? You must meet Jesus in his sufferings and glory. So in Philippians 3, when Paul uses the word citizenship, he does so because Philippi was a Roman colony, and as such, the residents of Philippi enjoyed the precious status as Roman citizens. It was a cause of civic pride. So the believers in Philippi that Paul writes to were citizens of Philippi, super good. They were also citizens of heaven, even better. How did they become citizens of heaven? Pretty simple. They were joined to the one who owned heaven, Jesus. (laughs) He's king of heaven. Heaven belongs to him. And the Bible talks about the church being the bride of Christ. So if you've been married into Jesus' family, guess what? You inherit everything that's Jesus's. Jesus owns heaven. If you belong to Jesus, you are co-citizens with Jesus of everything he owns. But it's not that simple. Because in and of your natural state, heaven's too costly for you. If you Googled expensive real estate in this world, one of the most expensive places you'll find is that little country on the Mediterranean, Monaco. A space roughly this big in Monaco, you wanted to purchase a space this big in Monaco, would cost you a million dollars. Heaven, the presence of God, is far more costly because anyone who tried to step into it with any sin at all would be immediately consumed by the presence of a holy God. Oh my goodness. Jesus Christ has paid in love for you to make a claim on the presence of God. He has purchased your citizenship in glory. How? By going to the cross and removing all of your sins. Beloved, really, if you die with sin, you can't make, you can't step for a nanosecond for a, for what's the smallest measurement? Somebody, a micro, a, a milliliter. You can't get that close. A milliliter is how small is that? Is that pretty small? You can't get that close to the presence of God. Christ has said, I'll take your sin. My blood will cleanse you and make you perfect for the presence of God. And I will clothe you in my righteousness so the moment you die, your Father welcomes you as if you were as pure and beautiful as the very Son of God himself. That's the gospel. Jesus takes your sin and he purchases a place for you in his presence forever. We call that the hope of glory. Paul says, in, in, in when he unpacks the gospel in Ephesians 2, he, he t- talks about union with Christ this way. He made us alive together with Christ. He raised us up with Christ. And he seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in some 
sense, now we are all with Christ in glory. That's how strong our union with Christ is. It's as if Jesus has said the moment he saves you, he takes a stake with your name on it and he puts it in the ground in glory and he says, that's reserved for you. I bought it, it's safe. If we had a, one more series to do in this, one more sermon to do in this series, it would be on the doctrine of perseverance. We persevere because Jesus preserves us. He keeps what he dies for. Oh, yes, that's our confidence. Lastly, let's tease out some implications of this doctrine. So what? What difference does it make? Let me just suggest five. It's brief. So you've been guaranteed by the grace of God because God loves you, the spoils of Christ's victory. Your forever homeland is paradise. What will you enjoy there? You will enjoy peace with God and perfect relational peace with every other person in the universe. You will be at peace with each other. <laughs> Since that's true, let's become walking advertisements of that future relational, peaceful glory where there's no conflict. Let's resolve our conflicts. Let's work doubly hard at peace with each other. Let's try, to let's try to be mirrors of that future glory, relational perfection. Let's try to bring it into our relationships here. It's hard. A part of me doesn't even want to. But the spirit of unity, the spirit of peace is capable of doing that among us. Second implication, our citizenship is defended by King Jesus. How many of you woke up this morning worried that America would be invaded and you'd be uh, physically threatened? Physically threatened. And no one woke up. We, don't, we take it for granted. We have a strong military. What a blessing. Who's protecting your place in paradise? The ultimate strongman, Jesus. He's protecting it. That's better than the best military anybody can throw at any country. I got an illustration of this in a really sweet way as a young man around the Beltway at Langley High School. I was able to play high school football with my older brother two years. We were on the varsity together. He was defense. I was a quarterback. He was good. I wasn't. In fact, to be specific, I was slow, weak, and timid. He was fast, strong, and fearless. He was a good football player. Well, I have occasion to run the offense against the number one defense. And sometimes, if I had to, I'd break through and run down into the middle of the number one defense. And my brother Dave was on the defense. You know what he would do? As I'd break into the defense, he would run up and go, don't hurt my brother, don't hurt my brother, don't hurt my brother. It was great. It was just great. And he meant it. Don't hurt my brother. Nobody puts a lick on my brother. How much more, Jesus, your older brother, protecting you, and giving you the grace to protect your brothers and sisters. Do you see a harm coming to them? Do you see them doing something self-destructive? Do you see a threat to their welfare? Step in. Ask Jesus for the grace. Don't hurt my brother. I've been waiting to use that illustration for a long time. Man, two sports illustrations in one sermon. You guys must think I'm a flunky. Third, third implication, 
our citizenship ought to humble us greatly. No one's born into the kingdom of God. You're rescued from yourself and your pride and your unbelief and your wretchedness by grace into the kingdom of God. You're loved into the kingdom by God who gives his son to bear all the wrath and hatred of God against sin. I read in my devotions, Psalm 5 this morning, a God's, God's hate of sin. Was not that hate poured out on his beloved son, bearing your sins in his body on the cross? Can we treat each other as co-owners of eternity? You're going to own it with Jesus. It's his, you, it's yours. You're, you're in the business with him. So it raises this question. Are you a good business partner? Are you bringing your gifts, your talents, your interests, your abilities, your spiritual gifts, are you bringing them to the company for its growth, for its health, for its welfare? I promise you, all of your deacons, all of your elders are jealous that every one of you is involved in a ministry using your gifts for the good of the body. We want that day to come. We want that day to come quickly. Fourth implication, will there be laws and glory? No. Laws attempt to restrain sin and disobedience. No one's going to be tempted to sin or disobey. You're going to be perfect. Everything you would do will be out of a godly heart. There's not a, there's not a chance you'll deviate from the will of God in glory. No laws. But... We who have been saved by Jesus Christ and given his precious law, which is honey and sweetness to ourselves, why not be an advertisement in this life for the beauty of holiness, for the blessedness of obedience, for the splendor of a heart submitted to God? You've seen this in your life. You've run into somebody who is really struggling with something and they are, they are steadfastly, perhaps at personal harm, remaining obedient to Jesus and, and it encourages you. It blesses you. So let's not wait to glory. Let's now reveal something of the beauty of a heart under the constraint of the Spirit himself. And finally, one last implication. Unlike citizens of this world, we have direct access to the person in charge. Go down, go down to Pennsylvania Avenue, try to get to the White House, try to get into the Oval Office. You can't. That place is guarded with metal fences and high-tech security, and you know, you know the story. We just can't waltz in to the power center of the country. Who cares? You have free access to the throne of grace. The writer of Hebrews says, let us draw near with confidence, therefore, to the throne of grace where we are promised to receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You might not be able to call the president. You can even write a letter to your congressman or senator without getting some staff or sending you the response back. God listens to your prayers. You have an audience with the living God. God himself communes with us in our prayers. Wow. That might be an under, underutilized resource in the kingdom of God. So, beloved, may he fill you with hope. There's an amazing passage, I can't go into it now, but in Hebrews, I think it's Hebrews 6, that talks about having hope as an anchor of the soul. 
And that anchor, and this may be why Andy chose the song we sang about the anchor, this is the only anchor in the world that doesn't go down. All anchor in history, all anchor in the history of the universe, anchors go down. Ours goes up into the Holy of Holies where Jesus is. Jesus is the anchor. That's where you're anchored. The supremacy of Christ, the reigning sovereign Savior who will never let you go. Never let you go. He who began this good work will complete it at his great day because he wants to show you off to everybody else what his love and power does in people like us. It's glorious. That's our hope. Let's pray. Our Father, fill us with the hope of glory, the certainty of seeing the, the finally realized glory of Christ in us now. Christ is in us by the Spirit. But on that day, face to face, on that day, hearing his voice, on that day, touching his nail-pierced hands, on that day, free from sin and misery, on that day, praising him the way he deserves. Sustain my brothers and sisters into that day. For his glory's sake, amen.